I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture. And we're reading Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. While you're turning there, just a comment about the notes that I handed out. I have been putting the whole passage in the children's notes uh, so that children can quickly access the verses that we're talking about. So if you hear a verse reference, you can look at that and quickly go there. Maybe you brought a Bible and you could use that as well, uh, but that is just another resource for you. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh." Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our God and our Father, we praise you for exalting your Son, Jesus Christ, to your right hand. Uh, We come to review these things, to remember these things, to hear what your word has to speak to us in the present day. Uh, We ask that you would bring this sermon from Peter and that by your spirit you would represent it to us and that our hearts would be ready to receive it, that it would bring about a transformation of mind and heart as we consider who our Lord Jesus is. So guide us now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we return to Acts this morning, we have the privilege uh, to hear once again the first sermon of the New Covenant Age of the church. This is a big deal. We get the very first sermon set before us once again. This is a very important sermon. Acts has many sermons in it, but I would say this is the sermon, the biggest one, the most important one in setting forth what was it that the apostles were telling the world. Peter's first sermon preached on the day of Pentecost marked the first public announcement to the world of Jesus' resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his sitting at the right hand of God. This was the big public service announcement that we have been proclaiming ever since that day. Amen. It is an exciting message for us as followers of Christ because it brings us back to the basics of what we believe. And what we are to tell the world. So if somebody says, what do Christians believe? This is one amongst many places that you can go and say, this is what we believe, and this is what you should believe too, because it's true. So we need to get a handle on the meaning and the application of this sermon today. And uh, we will cover the entire sermon uh, here today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the response when the people respond to Peter's message and he tells them to repent and be baptized and so forth. We'll look at all of that next week. But right now, we just want to get a handle on the sermon as a whole. Now, you might be thinking this is a lot of a of passage, and you are right. So hopefully I did not bite off too much for us. But I wanted to hold the whole thing together so that we can see the whole sermon. And as we look at this message, we find various themes that come back time and time again in the book of Acts. We we come back to the truth of Christ's resurrection many times throughout Acts. It's actually much more prominent in Acts than the cross of Christ is. And we also come back to the ascension of Christ and the enthronement of Christ, that he rules over all. That's a major emphasis of this sermon And if I was to say what the point of the sermon is, if I was to find like the concluding point, I would argue that the point of the sermon is found in verse 36. So I would encourage you to look at that, particularly because in verse 36, Peter says, therefore, after having said all these other things, he says, therefore, what does he want us to know? He says this, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the point of the sermon. That we would know that God made Jesus his son, Lord over all things, and the anointed Redeemer, the Christ. That's the point as I see it. This is a message about the victory of Christ. It's a victorious sermon about a victorious king. 
And I think it's very important for us to recover a sense of the victory of Christ. To know that Christ reigns. To know that he's bringing all his enemies under his feet. To know that Jesus is winning and we are winning with him is really important for our daily faith. Because sometimes we don't feel like we're winning. And there's times where we're not uh, as well. We have to be honest about that. If we are not walking in step with the Spirit or in the power of Christ. But it makes a difference when you get up every day to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It makes a difference to know that the resurrection power of Christ is available to you to live your life in the present age as well. To know that you can overcome. To know that one day you will rise again from the dead. These truths help us in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, that we are going to be raised with our Lord Jesus. And in terms of Christ's kingship, it gives us confidence when human institutions fail us, that we don't have to rely upon them because we have a better king. And when people fail us, to know that King Jesus is on the throne and that he's working all of this out for our good. This is very important for us. And so my prayer uh, for this message is that we would come out of it with a deeper sense of optimism about our King, our Savior, and His purposes for us. And so this is the first point in your notes, children. Uh, The very first point, if you were to summarize what is this message about, I would put it this way very simply. Number one, the main point of Peter's sermon is that Jesus won. W-O-N, Jesus won. Now let's review a few things as we look at the opening of Peter's sermon. We are on the day of Pentecost. We looked at that last time we were in Acts. Uh, This was an opportunity where uh, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people had gathered in Jerusalem for this feast, uh, the Feast of Weeks. They were all gathered there. That's what Pentecost is. uh, It's a word that simply means 50 because it was 50 days after Passover that they had the feast. And what took place on this important gathering was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God was poured out in great abundance upon Christ's disciples, and then they were enabled miraculously to speak in other human languages they did not know. And they were declaring the wonderful works of God, that all these people from all over the world, they said, we're hearing them say the wonderful works of God in our own language, and this doesn't make sense to us. How can this be? These are Galileans. They don't speak uh, the language of the Elamites. They don't speak the language uh, of Libya or Egypt. But how are they doing these things? Well, Peter uses this opportunity to preach his message. He starts with the event of speaking in tongues and what it means. And he quotes the prophet Joel. He says, he stands up in the midst of the, the group of people that's gathered. There's apparently thousands gathered at this point. And he says, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said 800 years previous to this moment. This is a big deal. We've waited 800 years for the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And Peter says, this, what you're seeing, is what the prophet Joel said would happen. And I'll read just a few of the verses again. Verse uh, 15 Peter says, these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will 
Pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. People wanted to make sense of what was happening. And so one of the suggestions as to what was taking place was to say, they're all drunk. Uh, The 120 are all drunk. And Peter says, well, that's not the case for a few reasons. First of all, he says, it's about 9 a.m., no drinking starts by that point. We're, this is the, the time of morning sacrifice. These people are not drunk. Rather, something very important has just happened. Drunkenness was not a very good explanation. How, how does somebody that's drunk get to speak in other languages that they don't know? That, that, I don't think that usually happens if they haven't learned any of the language or vocabulary of such a, such a language. So what he says is, This is what Joel said. It's happening right before your eyes. And what was so important about this moment was that the Spirit of God was being poured out on all of Christ's disciples. That's the emphasis of Joel 2. That's why Joel said it would be men, it would be women, it would be sons and daughters and old men, it would be men servants and maid servants. Why is that a, a big deal that all those different groups are listed? The reason it's important is because in the Old Covenant age, the Spirit of God was indeed active, but he was not as abundant in his activity amongst the people of God. We can think of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Covenant. We know that the Spirit of God would empower prophets, and the Spirit would empower kings, and and I do believe the Spirit was regenerating and sanctifying God's people in the Old Covenant and directing the writing of Scripture. The Holy Spirit was not absent from the Old Covenant, but the Holy Spirit's measure of influence and activity amongst the people of God was not as great as it would come to be in the New Covenant. This is the Spirit being poured out. And the picture of that language of being poured out, I think of like a dam of water being broken. Have you ever seen that happen or seen videos of a dam being broken and the water just pours out because there's so much pressure and so much power. And I think that is the idea of this pouring out is that the Spirit of God is going to come in the new covenant with such power and such extensive influence that the world will never be the same. And even Moses wished for this day to happen. You might remember the events in Numbers chapter 11 when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon some of the people Uh, to help Moses. Moses needed people with the Spirit's wisdom and prophecy to to guide the people. And and God says, okay, I'm going to put my Spirit upon some other people to help you in this task. But then uh, what happened in Numbers 11 is that the Spirit rested upon these two random guys in the camp. And Joshua was concerned about this. He says, this is not proper, Moses. These two men in the camp just got the Spirit and they're prophesying, we need to stop this from happening. And uh, Numbers eleven twenty seven. it says, A young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Madad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. This is not proper, Moses. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. He says, oh, what a blessing it would be if everybody had the Spirit of God like this. 
And it seems to me that Joel 2 is a fulfillment in that regard of what was being described there is that now it just wouldn't be Moses and the elders that would have this measure of the Spirit's influence and guidance, but that the people of God as a whole would speak forth his words. And I think it's clear from our passage that the speaking in tongues is actually a form of prophecy. It's a form of telling forth the word of God, because that's what Peter says is being fulfilled here. They were telling forth what God had done through Christ. It wasn't primarily a future telling, probably. It was just saying, here's what God has done. Believe these things. And then also, we we find as he quotes Joel, he talks about the signs that were going to take place. This was important, uh, the signs that Joel mentioned, because this was a wake-up call to Israel. So not only was an amazingly good and wonderful thing happening with the uh, the pouring out of the Spirit, but there was a a day of judgment that was looming over them as well, and they needed to repent, they needed to believe in Christ. And so Acts chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, he quotes Joel about some of the signs that would accompany the pouring out of the Spirit. He says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So Joel says, not only is the Spirit of God going to come, but there's going to be signs in the heavens. There's going to be amazing things happening. And all of this is a wake-up call to know that the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, is near. And you need to pay attention. And how, how should we read Joel's descriptions of these signs? Where do we see these things taking place? Well, I think it's, I think it's accurate to say that When it comes to this prophetic language, we do not always interpret it flatly in a literal sense. That is to say, when it says the moon will be turned into blood, I do not mean, I do not think it means that the solid mass rock of the moon will be turned into liquid. I don't think that's the point. Uh, But it is telling us that there were going to be, indeed, truly physical signs that would be evident. He's talking to them about the last days, the the days, I think, even particularly leading up to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was looming upon them within just a few decades. And these signs that Joel is describing, they did happen. These things were seen uh, in Israel and in the surrounding world. Darkness, for example, we think about the darkness that fell upon the land when Jesus was crucified. There was an earthquake when Jesus died. And and we're told in Matthew that some of the saints rose from the dead and left their tombs and went into the city and appeared to people. That would have been a wake-up call. There were amazing things happening. Remember that many of these people hearing this sermon, at least some, maybe many of them, would have been there when Jesus was crucified. What if they stayed from Passover to Pentecost? For some of it was such a long journey, I think they probably would have stayed And that means that they would have actually perhaps seen or heard about these signs taking place. And even more signs would follow throughout the first century. There's numerous historians and eyewitnesses that record an abundance of earthquakes, famines, wars, strange signs in the heavens. There were strange astronomical events like long eclipses that could not otherwise be explained. And they said, we do not know what is going on. This is very bizarre. 
And uh, I wish I could share all those details with you, but you'll find in Josephus and, and in Tacitus and Eusebius, some of these ancient historians, they tell you about these things that many eyewitnesses saw. There were signs in the heavens. There were strange events taking place that seemed unusual to that present generation. Peter mentions blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. That very clearly and literally happened in the frightful destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. These things they were going to see with their own eyes. And so while this prophetic language has some degree of metaphor in it, it also has things that truly, literally, physically did happen uh, within the first century. And, And so there's an anticipation that there are days of judgment that are coming, days of vengeance, Jesus calls them in Luke 21. And so Peter is saying, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe in the gospel. Now is the time to look to the Christ, to receive him, to be saved from this crooked generation. He he gives the final verse of Joel 2 in Acts 2.21. He says, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the application of Joel, is that These things are happening around you. You've just seen the outpouring of the Spirit of God. There's going to be frightful signs in the heavens. Are you going to pay attention? Are you going to wake up to what is taking place around you? Are you going to hear this message about Christ? And by way of application for us, brothers and sisters, when we see signs of God's activity in the world, we need to wake up. We need to pay attention to what these things mean. When you see fearful judgments taking place, consider that God is bringing his warnings to the world so that people will call on the name of the Lord. It's God's mercy to give us warning signs so that we give our attention to what he has revealed in his word, that we say, these are are serious things. And the day of the Lord is coming. The scriptures use the day of the Lord to refer to many different judgments. There's, of course, a final day of the Lord that we await. And the question for us is, have we taken into account the warnings that are before us? The Word of God gives us warnings. The providences of God around us give us warnings. And are, are we ready? Have we responded to the message of Christ and considered who He is and believed in His name? The Word of God promises that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter goes on, having, having told us about Joel, he, he now moves to his, his main subject, Jesus. He's talked about the outpouring of the Spirit and the signs and the day of the Lord, but now he says, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, To you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now we're going to go into the sermon here and think through some of the different aspects of of what Peter has to say, but I would just give you one observation about this sermon. Peter's sermon is an exposition of the Bible. 
The first sermon of the New Covenant Age is a biblical sermon. He quotes from Joel 2, he quotes from Psalm 16, he quotes from Psalm 110, and I think he even alludes to other passages in the Bible. But I would, I would like us to see that the very first sermon is a biblical sermon applied to the hearers of that present day. This reminds us, of course, that if we're going to follow in the footsteps of the apostles is that we need to preach the Bible. We don't preach our own ideas. Uh, We don't use the Bible simply as a lead-off for our own ideas. We preach what the Bible means, and then we apply it to the hearts of those who hear. And that's what Peter does for us. He, He quotes these different passages. And so what is Peter's uh, sermon? If we were to summarize the points about Jesus, I give you just three points that he gives us about Jesus after he had talked about Joel. Here's the three points. First of all, Jesus was crucified by wicked, lawless hands, but this happened by God's predestinating hand according to divine plan. That's, I think, the first thing he tells us. Secondly, Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 16, which David prophesied would happen. That's the second point. The third is that having risen from the dead, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110, and from that place of exaltation and kingship, he is ruler over all things. That seems to be the point of the sermon if we were to try to break it down. And he tells us that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. And so that's my aim as well, brothers and sisters, as I bring this sermon back out to you, is that none of us leave not believing that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And I know I can't do that in your heart, so the Spirit of God can convince you of that if you are not convinced. But that is my aim in setting forth these things for you once again. Now let's focus here on that first point that I mentioned, that Jesus died on the cross according to the divine plan of God. Verse 23, it says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. I believe this is one of the most important Verses in the entire Bible for understanding the sovereignty of God. Top three, perhaps. One of the most important verses for understanding the sovereignty of God. And children, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross in order to be the Savior of the world. God's plan. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, the very same kind of language comes out about the crucifixion. Peter's preaching again. Well, actually here, he's he's actually praying, I should say. Uh, They're gathered and they're praying. It says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Very clear. The crucifixion of Christ happened according to God's divine plan. And Peter says, those that did it were wicked and lawless people that need to repent. How do we bring these things together? 
We have these two truths. We, we have the first one, that Jesus was crucified by wicked hands. They're lawless hands. They need to repent or they will perish. They killed the prince of life, and it was evil. And then secondly, all of this happened because God determined it to happen beforehand. How do we bring these things together? Bringing these two truths together and reconciling them in our minds is not easy. It has occupied the most brilliant minds for centuries in attempting how to resolve those two things. And as I say brilliant minds, comparatively, no mind is all that brilliant uh, as it compares to the infinite wisdom of Almighty God. Some people will not maintain both truths. They say, I cannot hold these things together in my mind, and so I will choose one. Usually the freedom of man wins out and God's sovereignty gets discarded. But they can't maintain them in their minds. And and I would point out to you that uh, Peter doesn't worry about all of the uh, philosophical implications about this at this point. He just says, you need to repent of what you did, which God determined to happen. That's That's all he says. And it's not my purpose here to try to unravel that for you except to set it forth as part of the apostolic message and to draw some application for it. This is so important for us as we think about the sovereignty of God because if our God, who is infinitely wise, could bring about the greatest good through the most evil act ever committed, can he not bring out good through the things that we deal with and suffer in this evil world as well. If he could do it through this act, the worst, most heinous, sinful, evil act ever committed by killing the Son of God, and he saved the world through it, can he not bring out good through the evils that you experience in this present life? Of course he can. That's why this example is given to us, I think, is to say, my very salvation happened through the instrumentality, partially instrumentality, of evil actors doing evil things against Jesus. That's part of what we say. And above all of the human actors, above the Judases and the Pontius Pilots and the Jews and the Romans and all of the things they did, which were evil, we know that the scriptures tell us that he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, and that it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. This was the work of God. And this is so important for our faith, not only our faith in the death of Christ, which brings to us that forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, but our faith also in the sovereignty of God to bring us to glory, to work all things together for our good. Imagine for a moment that all the evil you experience in this life is completely meaningless and purposeless. Think back for however old you are at this point and all the different evils you have experienced in your life and to say all of that was meaningless and purposeless. That's what the world has to offer you, just to be honest. That's that's what they would tell you if you press them for it. Uh, Not that that's much of a, a billboard or bumper sticker for them, but that is what they believe. That's what the culture around us seems to believe. That's really depressing, isn't it? to think that all of this is meaningless and purposeless. And I want you to see from this message, from this event in the death of Christ, that 
Surely then, the promise of Romans 8.29 is true for us. If God can do this greater thing, then he can do all the lesser things as well. He can deal with all the lesser evils in our lives and so direct them that in the end, he is glorified and we have it as our good as well. So that's the first thing that he says. Then he moves to the resurrection of Christ, which is where he spends perhaps most of his time in expounding Scripture. And he, he moves to Psalm 16, and he reasons from the Scriptures. He does actually use a reason and logic and, and some evidence to show how Psalm 16 was fulfilled. And the reason that Psalm 16 was so relevant for him was he could actually tell the Jews, we know where David's tomb is. Apparently at that time it was known uh, where the tomb of, of David was, and so they could go, they could all walk down to the tomb uh, there in Jerusalem and say, this is David. And he's still in there. His body is still there. It's rotting. It's been there a long time. His bones are there. And so in the ultimate sense, Psalm 16 can't just be talking about David because it says, you will not leave my soul in Hades or in in the grave. You will raise me up. You will not allow me to see corruption. Well, David was experiencing, at least at that time, corruption. Here's what he says, verse 29 through 32. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." And so this is what Peter is saying about uh, Psalm 16. He says, this cannot just apply in the ultimate sense to David. David was looking forward to his son, the successor, the one who would take up the covenant promises and reign forever, which is what the covenant in 2 Samuel 7 had promised. And he says that David was writing as a prophet. He was foreseeing something that was going to happen one day. And it was that Christ would be raised up. He explicitly tells us, Psalm 16 is about the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And I want you to pay attention to verse 30 and 31 of our our passage because it gives us a connection that's very important. He says this, that according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So that's what he says Psalm 16 is anticipating, Christ raising up to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. Now what I want you to see from that is that the resurrection is inseparable from biblical prophecy. It's inseparable from the ascension and the enthronement. It's, it's a package deal. They all happen together. He gets raised, he ascends, and he sits on the throne because he says David saw all of that happening. And the reason I emphasize that is because there are Christian denominations and Christian teachers who tell us that Jesus is not on the throne. 
He has gone to heaven, they would say, but he is most surely not on the throne of David. Well, I think Peter's message about Psalm 16 tells us that it has happened. He is on the throne. David prophesied it would happen, and it happened. And if we miss this, then I think we have missed one of the key points of the sermon. And kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Jesus is on the throne right now. Jesus is on the throne right now. So he's, he's worked out Psalm 16. He's shown us the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement. Now he moves to Psalm 110. He says, I have another passage for you. Psalm 110 tells us about this Jesus and about these events that would take place. In verse 34 and 35, he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice how Peter interprets Psalm 110. He says, this is anticipating the ascension of Christ. But David didn't go up there. David didn't sit down at the throne of God at God's right hand and reign over all things. David died. And so David is looking at the Christ being seated on the throne. We know that that's the case about Psalm 110 because it begins with, the Lord said to my Lord. And Jesus pointed this out to his hearers. He says, how could David call him Lord if it was actually speaking about David? And, and everybody was baffled by that. They didn't have an answer for it. But it, Jesus says, clearly there's, there's two lords here. There's Yahweh God, and then there is this other Lord who sits at God's right hand, and neither of them are David. David was talking about them. And so Psalm 110 is so important. It is, in fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I think that tells you something about how important this psalm is. Like, we better understand the most quoted psalm in the New Testament if we would know who Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, And interestingly, it's a battle psalm with people's heads getting shattered and uh, enemies getting crushed. It's an interesting uh, emphasis, isn't it, of the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Interestingly, it's not Psalm 23. Now, I love Psalm 23. We all do. But that's not the most quoted psalm. Now, with this language, that sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What does that mean? Make your enemies your footstool. Well, we need to think about what that language is. And kids, this is something good to think about. What does it mean for Jesus to put enemies under his feet? Well, this actually did happen in another part of the Bible. It happened back in the book of Joshua. There was this moment where uh, the children of Israel were conquering the land of Canaan, and they brought together all these kings that they had defeated, and Joshua told the, the generals of the army, he says, put your, feet, put your feet on their heads and on their necks. It's kind of rough, isn't it? He gathered all these kings together, sat them on the ground. He says, put your feet on their necks. Okay, so here's the, the passage, Joshua 10 24 through 25. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near, put your feet on the neck, necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. And then this is his point about it. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. That was the point. He says, you see, 
There was Joshua chapter 1, right? He says, be strong and of good courage. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And they hadn't done anything yet, so they were pretty fearful. And, and now we're in Joshua 10, and the kings are on the ground, the, the, the feet are on the necks, and he says, see, that's what I said back in Joshua 1. God's with us. He's going to conquer our enemies. We're going to be victorious. And so that's the picture. When, when we see he will put enemies under his footstool, it's the idea of those enemies being utterly subdued by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to bring them all under his feet. He's going to conquer the entire world. He is now at God's right hand. He is presently bringing his enemies under his feet. Now what does this look like as it works its way out in history? Well, with King Jesus reigning over all things, we know that he is defeating Satan. Satan is already very much vanquished. Satan's just running uh, mad and scared because he knows his time is short. That's what Revelation 12 tells us. Uh, The demons of hell trembled at at Christ, and they knew of Christ's authority in the Gospels. We saw that. And we know that on that final day when our Lord Jesus brings in glory and he returns, that they will be utterly done. They will have zero influence anymore. But even at present, I believe that their influence has been significantly affected by his reign. What does it mean for humanity? Well, it means that as Jesus brings people under his feet, he either brings them under his feet through salvation, he subdues them, that's what it says in Psalm 110, your people will be volunteers on the day of your power. I think that's referring to him drawing people to himself that become part of his, his army, as it were. And he's doing that. He's saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's, he's drawing them to himself. Just think of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul hated Christ and was doing everything he could to stop the church. And, and Jesus stopped Paul in his tracks and put Paul under his feet in a saving sense and said, you're going to do whatever I tell you to do now. And I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for me. That, that's, that was the message. And Paul said, I will do it. Yes. Tell me what to do, Lord. That's a picture of our conversions at some point or another. Jesus grabs us and says, you're going to serve me. I'm going to save you and you're going to serve me. And then for others, those who oppose Jesus, he, he either saves them or he conquers them and judges them. And children, this is the fourth point in your notes Number four, Jesus will conquer the whole world. Jesus will conquer the whole world. This needs to shape, I think, how we think about history, how we think about our lives in history. And and I would ask you, how do you view the world at present? And I'm not trying to be unrealistic about evil. I'm not trying to be unrealistic about what we see taking place around us. Uh, we need to have a discernment of the times. We need to be honest about, at times, how bad things are or how good things are. But how do you view the world? Do you view the world as out of control? Does evil always win? Is history just a long succession of defeats for God's people? Or does this psalm inform your view of history? Do you believe that Jesus is bringing enemies under his feet right now? And let's remember what Jesus has already done. Let's let's think through what we've already seen take place. Jesus' kingdom is that mustard seed that has become a massive, massive tree, just as he said it would. 
We started with 120 people in an upper room, and now at the present, we have billions of professing Christians worldwide. Billions at present. There's not counting the rest of the 2,000 years of people that have been redeemed. We need to see what Jesus has done. We need to give him the glory for what he has done and not diminish anything in terms of what he's done. And recognize that the verse did not say this. This is not Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until all your enemies win and your reign is defeated. It's not, it's not what it said. That, that would be to completely invert the meaning of the message. It said rather, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 25, Paul says of Jesus' present reign, I believe that's what he's talking about, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. This has implications for how we view the future. Do we believe that Jesus' kingdom will continue to advance against all the opposition, that it will, it will accomplish its, its powerful work in the world? Yes, we must believe that based on this passage. I can't tell you the exact measure of growth. I can't tell you the day of Christ's return. I can't tell you how long it will take, but I can tell you that we need to believe what these words say and that Jesus will bring all enemies under his feet. So now, brothers and sisters, we come to the conclusion of the message as it was preached by Peter in verse 36. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's at this point that as we hear these words, we need to bring this message to bear upon our hearts. We need to consider our own interaction with it. Do we receive these words? Are these words a dead letter to you? Do they not make sense? Do they not resonate with you? Or do you say, in a true and a spiritual sense, amen, I believe this? Have you acknowledged Jesus to be Lord over all things, and therefore, by implication, the Lord of your life, the one who rules over you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that you believe that he has done all that God promised would happen to save his people and therefore save you? Do you believe that he is that priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin and one who has gone to the Father's right hand to intercede for sinners like you and that he is now interceding for you because you have believed? Do you believe that his words and the words of the scriptures are the final revelation of God, that they give you absolute truth, important truth, relevant truth for your life, and do you receive those words today? And these questions that I'm asking you, they are crucial, personal, and eternally important questions to answer. I I urge you not to leave them unanswered when you leave. I urge you to answer them by confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and some of us, that's confessing once again. I'm not, I'm not calling for a, a second, third, fourth conversion. I'm calling for faith. I'm calling for confessing, whether for the first time or the hundred, hundred thousandth time, Jesus is Lord in Christ. Peter's sermon preached 2,000 years ago is just as relevant today as it was then. 
And in our case, we have even more reasons to see its truth because we've seen Jesus' reign over the whole world throughout 2,000 years. We've gotten to witness a lot of what he's done. And I hope that further reinforces the truth uh, in the sense of receiving it into your minds here and your hearts as we come face-to-face with this message. So let us uh, close in prayer asking that God would uh, bring these things into our hearts. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you for your mighty work of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, now resurrected, now ascended, now sitting at your right hand. We thank you for his victory, and we proclaim his victory today. And we ask that we would see in our own lives uh, increasing victories as well, the victory of overcoming sin, uh, walking in the ways of righteousness, believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and and participating in that kingdom work that he has called us to. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would grant us faith to believe what we have heard today. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.